Coming to you from the Philadelphia area, this is the Westchester Church Podcast. Check us out at westchestercfc.com. Westchestercfc.com. Peter, James, and John see Jesus, Moses, and Elijah standing face to face and speaking amongst each other there on the mountaintop. And I don't know how it's made known to them, but somehow it's, hey, see those guys over there who Jesus is with? Yeah, that's Moses and Elijah. I mean, Moses has been dead for over a thousand years at this point. And Elijah's been dead for about 850 years. And so what you have is Jesus standing there with the law and the prophets. And notice how they are standing there and they are the ones who are listening to Jesus as he speaks to them. And so what we see in the transfiguration in so many ways is the coronation of Jesus as the brand new Moses. Where what God is saying to the world is that once Moses was on a mountaintop and now Jesus is on the mountaintop, Jesus is going to give us a a greater law and a greater way to live. And it's Jesus who's going to be leading us into a far greater promised land. And sure enough, as the cloud envelops all three of them, only one of them is left standing and that is Jesus Christ. As the voice resounds from the heavens, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Listen to Jesus. And yet something else that we see here in Mark chapter 9 though is that mountaintop experiences are are very much associated and synonymous with the people of God given brand new eyes. So often when the people of God are given brand new eyes, it is on a mountaintop. And as they come down from the mountain, they are doing so with brand new eyes. And they will never be the same again. And this is especially the case with with Peter, James, and John. And yet equally though, whenever, almost whenever we have a seminal spiritual moment unfolding on a mountaintop in the scriptures... Chaos immediately follows as they come down from the mountain. Mount Sinai, Moses comes down from the mountain. He's got stone tablets of the Ten Commandments. But but what is waiting for him at the foot of that mountain are the Israelites dancing around a golden statue that they are now worshiping and calling God. On Mount Carmel, Elijah prays in such a way that God re you know, he replies in fire on the altar. And yet, what is waiting for Elijah at the bottom of that mountain, though, is depression and despair, as Queen Jezebel now has a price put on his head. As Jesus comes down after he had given a sermon on the mounts, what is waiting for him is, is a leper who has left the leper colony, and now he is infiltrated into everyday life, which, which was very much frowned upon in that age. And yet again, pandemonium is waiting at the bottom of this particular mountain Jesus is on, Mount Tabor. And so as Jesus comes down from the mountain, there is a very loud commotion and dispute that is taking place. And as Jesus looks very 
closely what is happening is he sees a bunch of scribes. And they're doing what scribes do absolute best, having loud religious arguments. In this case, with his other apostles. And I think it's pretty safe to say that it is no coincidence that wherever you will hear loud religious argumentation, chances are you have a demon close by. And that is what is happening here in Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 16. As the scribes argue with, with his other disciples, what, what Jesus says in verse 16 is, he asks his disciples, what are you arguing about with them? And it's then where it says, someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought you my, my, my son. For he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out of him, and yet they were not able to. Jesus answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him over here to me, Jesus says. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw Jesus, immediately it convulsed the boy and he fell on the ground and rolled about foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water, trying to destroy him. But if you can do anything at all, have compassion on us, he says, and help us, Jesus. And so what we see here is he has a son who has what is referred to as a spirit. Now that word spirit in the original language means breath, it means wind. In some cases it means God's Holy Spirit in us. Other times it simply means having a breath of life in our, our um, bodies and being able to live and to breathe. And yet, as we see in instances such as this, it's not always a good kind of spirit, is it? What we're dealing with here is a very nefarious, malicious entity of a demonic spirit. And so what we see is the result of all of this argumentation is this is a failed exorcism that has just happened. And for his other apostles, this is a moment of complete and utter failure for them. I imagine it was a very embarrassing thing for them as Jesus comes back because a student and a disciple was to be a reflection. They were to be a copy of the one who had taught them. Hey everybody gather around, we are, are um, Jesus people. <laughs> and yet they're unable to cast the demon out. And notice how all of this is playing out in front of Jesus' loudest critics. Well, Jesus had given them authority to drive demons out earlier on in the Gospels. On occasion, they, they actually had driven some demons out before. And yet, for some reason, in this particular instance, they were not able to get it out of this boy. Well, last week we spoke about the spiritual warfare that is constantly ensuing around us. And as we began our series on demonology, we, we had seen how there are a lot of people who believe that what, what demons are are just simply fallen angels. 
As we saw in the case of the ancient Hebrews, though, what they believed is that demons were, were spirits of the wicked dead and of the evil dead. I'm really not interested in, in arguing about that and getting into religious argumentation about that. I just want to get to what truly matters, which is, is that what demons are, are spiritual entities roaming the earth who are in malicious pursuit of our joy, of our faith, and yet especially they are in pursuit of our souls. Now what we saw last week is how demons traffic in the art of deception. And yet what we see in our text this morning is that also demons traffic in fear and in torment. Notice what this particular spirit, a demonic spirit, is doing in the body of this child. We see the violence that is associated with it. And what immediately jumps out to me is that demons are scary. Demonic presence is not to be ever taken lightly or to be played around with. Yet as we see over and over and over again in the Gospels and in the book of Acts, among other places, is that it was a terrifying, traumatic thing to be in the presence of demonic possession. It was even scarier to be held captive by a demonic force as, as this young child is experiencing. And we see what his symptoms are in the text. How, first of all, it says that, that the spirit that he has has made him mute. I mean, this kid is unable to speak. He can't say a word. And so it has robbed him of the ability to speak. But notice also that he is, he is showing signs of having epilepsy here. And yet I believe, though, it's a lot more than just simply him having epileptic fits and seizures. But, but it gets very graphic and, and, and extremely disturbing as, as it goes on and it explains how sometimes he begins foaming at the mouth, grinding his teeth. I mean, he is looking like a rabid animal as a result of having a demonic presence within him. And his father also says that it makes him rigid. And what that word rigid means in the original language is that it is withering away. It is, it is wasting away something. And I'm sure we all remember an instance as Jesus curses a fig tree and it immediately withers. And, and that's the exact same word that is used here about what a demon is doing to this young boy. It is withering and wasting him away. And if I could pause for a moment, we, we really need to establish a fact that, that not everybody who has a seizure, not everybody who has trouble speaking or, or whatever it might be, automatically has a demon within them. I've had a number of people in my life when I was younger, and I had a severe speech disorder who, I mean, one guy tried to um, drive a demon out of me. You have, have a dumb spirit, as he referred to it as. And, and he said, I'm going to drive it out of you right now, and it, nothing happened. <laughs> you know? I remember an instance in John chapter 9 as Jesus encounters a boy who had been born blind. He didn't have a demon, but he was born blind. But, but everybody was, was asking Jesus, who sinned, him or his mom and dad, that, that he would be born blind? And Jesus says, neither. He says it was neither that he or his parents sinned that he was born blind, but, but the reason for him specifically, Jesus says, is that so God's works might be displayed within him. 
And so it's not always a demon if a person has any kind of an outward struggle. And yet on the other hand, though, as we see here, sometimes it is a demonic force which is causing his muteness. I especially want us all to take notice how this demon is possessing, he's inhabiting, he he is tormenting an innocent child. It is an act of spiritual fear and of of terrorism, which is even worse than, than initially meets the eye, isn't it? Because what does his father say? He's speaking with Jesus and he reveals to him that this this spirit that he has within him has even tried to murder him. It has thrown him into water trying to drown him. It's thrown him into a fire trying to scorch him to death. And as he says, this has been going on his whole entire life, Jesus. And a demonic force has left his son a mute epileptic who who every living moment of his life was being spent in pure terror and in anguish and in torment. I mean, he's terrified to go to sleep. He's terrified to wake up in the morning and to meet the day because he knows that at any moment in time, it's going to happen again and another violent demonic assault is going to come upon him. And you know, as for us though, I doubt that even one of us will ever be violently thrown down on the ground, shrieking and foaming at the mouth from a demonic spirit, thrown into actual fires, whatever it may be. But whether our demons are literal as they are in the text, or if our demons are more metaphorical as an expression, when we really stop and think about it, we have all been thrown into the fire of fear, and of anguish, and of torment. I think we all can remember seasons in our life where it felt like everything was completely perfect. And we're, we're up there on a, on a lofty mountaintop, just like Peter, James, and John were. And there's something idyllic that is happening that we just never want it to come to an end. We just want to forever live in that moment. And yet then, what happens? We, we have to come down from the mountain, don't we? And so we come down from that mountaintop, and and what is awaiting us at the foot of that mountain? Tragedy is waiting for us. Or maybe adversity returns to us. Sickness and disease comes upon us or upon our loved ones. Or financial woes are going to befall us, whatever it may be. And suddenly, all over again, now the world becomes a very scary place all over again for us. In a a movie, Saving Private Ryan, there is a scene that has always lingered and played on in my mind. While war rages on everywhere else, there is one soldier who is absolutely consumed. I mean, he has the full armor on. He has lifted up the full armor. He he has the weapons. He has a bullet necklace on. But but what is he doing? He's absolutely shell-shocked. He is frozen in fear and in panic and in terror and in torment. And he just collapses on a stairwell and just sobs. And he cries his heart out even while his own brother gets stabbed to death by the enemy. 
And I mean, that is exactly what the spiritual forces of darkness want for you and want for me. They want to see us spiritually shell shock. They want us to live in a constant perpetual state of fear and terror and torment and of a panic. They want to see us terrified to speak the name of Jesus. They want to see us absolutely scared to live the Christian life in the world, fearing what might come upon us. I think there's, there's a lot of people who are terrified to make one mistake after becoming Christians because they have been fed many lies about the Jesus of Satan's imagination, who just one mistake and you're going straight to hell. And a lot of Christians are living scared. And as a lot of, and as just about every one of you know my own specific story, I mean, I spent my whole entire life terrified to speak. I was petrified to ever introduce myself or to say my own name because I knew that, that at any moment it was going to happen all over again. Or I would be able or completely unable to speak. And it got to a point where I began having um, panic attacks. I had one at the house many years ago, had a couple in public. I was in Walmart once and hit the ground, I wake up, and there's all these people screaming in the walkie-talkies over me. A couple months after that, I was at a post office, and again, I hit the ground, blacked out, out of all of the fear that was in me and anxiety. And in so many ways, you and I have to walk through the fire. And I don't think anybody walks through the world's fires in the exact same way, but, but we all in our own unique ways have to walk through the fire, don't we? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had been thrown into the fire, weren't they? Once again, what we see going back to last week, that, that what is throwing them into a blazing fiery furnace are the principalities and powers of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. And because they refused to bow down and to worship the principalities and powers, Nebuchadnezzar says, throw them in that furnace, make it seven times hotter. And so the three of them are then cast into the blazing furnace. And yet then Nebuchadnezzar is, I mean, he's completely astonished. And he asks the famous question, were there not three men who we bound into the blazing furnace? Behold, I see four men walking about, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt by it. And the appearance of the fourth man is of the appearance like the son of the gods. I don't know why it's a controversial statement whenever I say this, but, but I believe that this is Jesus Christ. A lot of people say it's an angel, fine, but I mean, I, I believe that Jesus is so much cooler than we even think that he is. Moses and Elijah came into the future. I believe Jesus, if he wanted to, could have been in that fiery, blazing furnace. And yet, regardless if it was actually him or an angel of his, regardless, Jesus was walking through that fiery furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And as I think about the Apostle Peter later on in his life, as he writes to a church that is walking through intense fires of persecution, what he says is that in this you greatly rejoice, 
Even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith being more precious than gold, which is going to perish, even though it is tested by fire, he says, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And you see, this is what his intention is for us. And now the spiritual forces of darkness want to destroy our peace. They want us to live our lives in fear and in terror, but but Jesus wants to bring us through all of those flames and fires with an even fiercer faith and joy within us that, that we ever had before. Where a lot of people are going to look at us after we have been through fires and, and say, I mean, I, I thought she was thrown into the fiery furnace. How does she still have faith and joy and peace in her soul? How is that possible? How did those flames not scorch her to death? And we ourselves now take on the form of a burning bush. We all remember how long ago, how how it was, was um, Moses who, who had stood before a bush as it was, was completely engulfed in flames, but, but it was not scorched to death. Now God is making you and he's making me living burning bushes for him. And so Jesus brought Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego through the fire. He brings us through our fires. And as we continue in Mark chapter 9, what we see is that Jesus is also going to bring this young demoniac through the fire that his demons have thrown him into. And that's because demons answer to an even higher power and authority than the devil himself. Mark chapter 9, and there in the 25th verse, it says, And when Jesus saw that a crowd had come running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit. He said to it, You mute and deaf spirits. I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. And the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them had said, he's dead. And yet Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. I just find that language so beautiful that that it looked like he was dead, but now Jesus has given him a brand new beginning. He's given him a brand new life, and and he returns him to his father, a brand new son. I said a moment ago how scary a demonic presence is, but notice that as Jesus comes into contact with it, as terrifying as this visual had been, notice how unintimidated Jesus is by it. I mean, he just stares at it. And he looks it up and down and and he rebukes it. (laughs) He looks at it and he calls it, you deaf and mute spirit, I command you. And when Jesus commands something, it is going to be so. He says, "I, I command you, come out of this young boy and never return to him ever again. And so we see that this is a sea storm all over again. We remember Jesus in the boat with the the apostles as a storm breaks out on the sea. 
And once again, scary, life-threatening stuff is happening before their eyes. His disciples feel helpless, and they are absolutely horrified, terrified in this moment. And the eyes of the apostles are, are so fixated on the winds and the waves of this storm that really it was all that they were able to see. And that's when Jesus comes to the rescue. Jesus looks at the storm and he silences it with just a few faithful words. A moment ago, we heard Jesus say in the text, Oh, faithless generation, how much longer am I going to have to put up with you guys? And I don't see an angry condemnation in those words. I don't think he's mad at his apostles, but, but rather what I, I really see this is, is an exclamation of awe. I can almost hear Jesus saying in these words, when are you guys going to remember that I am, am absolutely present in your every anxious moment? When are you going to believe that, that me and my power are present in your every moment? And you know, he could say the same thing to me this morning as I'm standing here. He could maybe even say the exact same thing to you this morning. When are you going to just trust that I am present in your every moment? Well, afterwards, as the apostles go into a house and they sit down with Jesus, they just sit down with Jesus and they say, How? How were we not able to drive that evil spirit out of the boy? Jesus, we tried to drive it out. We were able to before. We tried very hard, but why weren't we able to do it? And it's here where Jesus lets them in on a very important secret. Where he reveals to his followers that, that a demon of this magnitude can only go out one single way. As we see in verse 29, what he says is that he says to his apostles, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Why couldn't you guys drive it out? Because you didn't pray. <laughs> you never called on the power of God to drive it out of the boy. And I really think that the most important question that we need to ask ourselves as we go into our fires especially, is ask ourselves, have I prayed about it? I posted about it on Facebook, yes. I, I've argued about it with other people, but, but have I prayed about it? Have I called on the power of Jesus Christ to confront this fire that I'm going through? What I learned from this specific example in Scripture, is that if we want to pass through the fires of life unscorched, we need to learn how to pray fiercer than we did on the day before and on the hour before. Have I prayed? And secondly, what I want to call to our attention as we close is that we've got to get rid of if as we're speaking about Jesus. We've got to lay hold of Jesus will. As we see in the middle of the text in verse 22, earlier on, as his father is explaining what is going on in his son, notice how he says in the latter part of verse 22, he says, but if you can do anything at all, Jesus, 
Have compassion on us and help us. It makes me smile, verse 23. It just makes me smile every time. Where it says, Jesus said to him, If you can. I mean, you're talking about the power of Jesus Christ here. What do you mean, if? If you can, Jesus says. All things are possible for the one who believes. And again, I don't see Jesus being angry as he says this. I, in fact, I see the biggest smile on Jesus' face. In Matthew's account, as he approaches Jesus, he says, Lord, have mercy on my son. And what that word Lord means in the original language, it is, it is a very... Um, or um, Lord is used in a very casual tense. What, what he's saying is, sir... Sir, if you can help my son, it would be just tremendous. And so it appears that this man very likely is encountering Jesus for the very first time in his life, as we all have to. And yet it is so beautiful because these are the life-changing moments. These are those beautiful life-changing moments and experiences where Jesus goes from just being a sir so, man, this guy is the Son of God, and there is nothing that he cannot do in rescuing me from out of the fire. I mean, if is the word that Satan uses. As he said to Jesus, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. If you are the Son of God, command stones to become bread. And then came the ultimate, greatest of his temptations, I believe. As Jesus is, is now dying on a cross, and he hears Satan speaking through the religious leaders, that same exact word, if you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So Jesus is saying to him, we don't need to use that word if, if you're speaking about me. I am who I am. And then lastly, we need to remember the prayer of this boy's father. Verse 24, how he responds to Jesus is, he says, immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. Amen. And I think this is one of the most moving moments in all of scripture, because as it says that his father cried out, what this means in Greek is that he is literally sobbing. He's crying. And in Matthew's account, he literally falls down before Jesus. I mean, this guy is exhausted. He is exactly the kind of person Jesus had been referring to as he says, Come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I do believe Jesus, he says, but I am just so tired, and I am so weary. Jesus, you need to understand this is the only child that I've got. And the doctors, I mean, just, just nothing that the doctors can do. It just won't go away. It is, it is a nightmare with no end. So he says to Jesus, I do believe, but, but so often in my humanity, my, my own faith is, is not what it needs to be. And so what he says is, help my unbelief. Help me to be able to put all of the chips to the center of the table in my life and to bet the house that Jesus and the power of God are going to rescue me from whatever stands in my way. Help me to put all of my trust and confidence 
and hope in you, Lord. As we see in the text, Jesus was their one and only hope. Literally, nobody else could rescue him from his demons. And I would say just as much, Jesus is our one and only hope as well. And yet regardless of how specifically it looks like as we walk through the fire in our lives, our closing word this morning comes to us from John as he simply says this, Greater is he who is in you, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. As we close, let us go to God in prayer.